The following message is made available by First Baptist Church of Crosby, Texas. For more information or to help support our ministries, please visit us online at fbccrosby.org. Would you pray with me? God, would you send your spirit now? We gather together as spiritual people seeking to do spiritual things. Therefore, at every moment, every note we sing, every word we speak, every prayer we utter, we are dependent upon the work of your Spirit. If we, if we attempt to do what needs to come next in our own power and in the flesh it'll be an utter train wreck it may sound fine it may look polished but there will be no life so Father we pray that you would take complete control of all that happens in the moments to come through the working of your spirit. Sharpen my mind. Guard my lips. Let me to speak only your truth. Then give these people ears to hear that they may rightly receive it. Father, we love you. We trust you and we thank you. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So, after 26 months, and more than 100 sermons, we now come to the conclusion of Mark's gospel. And I do not think that I have words that are adequate to express to you the joy that I felt during our time together. You people have given me a true gift. As we have worked just meticulously through God's word, desperately seeking to rightly handle and discern and understand every last word of it. I pray that you people have been as blessed as I have. We've, we've strived together to just dig and struggle and grow as we sat under the full weight of all that God has to say here. I truly, I truly pray that you people have been blessed. I pray that the Holy Spirit has used this time, he's used our efforts together to bring you to more fully see his glory in the face of his son. If I thought that I could get away with it, we would immediately jump into John's gospel. Because the reality is that we could easily spend 15 or 20 years devoting every single Sunday morning to studying and understanding the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, and we would never exhaust it all. We would never fully comprehend the power and the majesty and the beauty of this one we call Lord. But it seems to me that that is not God's plan for us as a faith family. It seems to me that his plan for the foreseeable future is that we would study Paul's letter to the churches in and around Ephesus. There we're going to strive together to unpack the glorious riches of God's grace that are ours in Christ. It almost feels to me as though we've now received this gift. We've now seen all that Jesus Christ has done in his life, in his death, in this morning, in his resurrection. And now God's going to allow us to step back and say, you don't know the half of it. We're going to listen as the Apostle Paul says, let me show you what this gift really is. Let me show you how deep it is, how wide it goes, and then let me show you what it looks like to live in light of that within the confines of a local church family. Let me show how it's going to affect your day-to-day -day life within your family, in your neighborhoods, in your marriage, in your work week. And all the while, let me show you all the ways that God has promised to strengthen you. I, I am excited to see what God's going to do, and I have no, long, no idea how long it's going to take us to work through the book of Ephesians. As you know, we're not going to move fast. We're going to allow the Holy Spirit to set the pace. And I am supremely confident that God's going to use that time to sharpen our affections, 
to increase our dependence and to strengthen our confidence in all that Jesus Christ is for us. So God willing, we will begin that study in five weeks. I need time to gather my thoughts. Preaching through an epistle is not altogether undifferent, uh, uh, different than preaching through a gospel, but there are some unique challenges to rightly interpreting a letter. And I need all the time that I can get to, to devote myself to prayerful preparation, to preparing my heart, to preparing my mind, to shifting my focus away from walking through a narrative to walking through a deep doctrinal letter. And so the plan is that for the next two Sunday mornings, Pastor Kyle is going to preach to you. The two weeks after that, I'm going to bring to you messages based on some texts that I don't think we've had an opportunity to yet touch on and that I don't think we're going to get to in, in Ephesians. And then again, God willing, we plan on starting our walk through Ephesians together in five weeks. Now that's, of course, always subject to change. I don't know what tomorrow might hold. But it's my hope that this will allow you to begin preparing your hearts and minds. Two years is a long time in a book. I think Ephesians is going to take us longer. But two years is a long time in one book of the Bible. So my encouragement to you is to go read Ephesians over and over and over again. Start making notes, questions to yourself. What does this word mean? How do these phrases fit together? How is Paul defining this word that he's used over here? Just making notes and questions and jotting them all down then working on your own to, to struggle through this, to determine what do you believe these words mean? What do you believe Paul is saying here so that you show up in this place prepared? Not waiting to be spoon-fed, but looking forward to struggling together as we work through this letter. But for this morning, we return our attention to Mark's gospel and we'll conclude with that. So go ahead and stand to your feet, please. The reverence of reading of God's word We're going to read Mark, chapter 16, verses 1 through 8. This is the word of God. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome brought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb, and they were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance to the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. He said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who has been crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they lay him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. And all God's people said, Amen. You may be seated. Father God, again, we are dependent upon you. We ask you to do what only you can do, Father. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear, hearts to believe this word that you have brought to life for us, Father. We love you and we thank you. For it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. So after a life of absolute perfect sinlessness, a life marked with nothing but absolute obedience to God, after a three-year earthly ministry filled with miraculous works, authoritative teaching, even raising men from the dead, Jesus Christ had left no doubt as to his identity. And yet now at the end of this, we find him here. The Son of God, Jesus, the Christ, laying down his life. Just as he has so often predicted, Jesus came and was rejected and mocked and killed by his own Jewish people. Now this, of course, is quite shocking to us if we consider the way that the entire week began. We know that Jesus and his companions, his disciples, they had traveled south from Galilee into Jerusalem to observe the Passover. This was a high and holy day. For us, we might think of it like Easter and the 4th of July and Thanksgiving all rolled into one. It was an opportunity for God's people to look backwards to his redemptive work in setting their fathers free from slavery in Egypt. 
It was also an opportunity for them to look forward, for them to think about all that God had promised to do for them through their fathers, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Truly, this was a precious time. But the buzz that filled the air on this Sunday of Holy Week, it was not about the feast. It was about the Christ. For hundreds of years, God's people had awaited his coming. The promised Messiah, the son of David, who would take and sit upon his eternal throne. He would bring peace that had never been seen, unending, unbroken peace, unimaginable prosperity to the people of God. Truly, the kingdom of God would consume the kingdoms of this world. Never again would the people of Israel be forced to bow under the weight of foreign, godless, pagan kings. But on this Sunday afternoon, by this point, as Jesus is riding into town, anyone who had not heard of any of other Jesus' uh, miraculous works, surely they had found out about what happened in Bethany. We know that it was there not very many days before this point. We know that it was there where a man who Jesus loved, a man called Lazarus, we know that Jesus had raised him from the dead. Now, a miracle this public, this powerful, this undeniable, it gave such clear evidence who Jesus was, the anointed one of God, the Christ. And yet for so much of Jesus' earthly ministry, he had been so reluctant to allow people to recognize him by this title. Anytime someone would come to this confession, whether it was a demon or even his own followers, anytime someone would come to the confession that Jesus was the son of the most high God, the true and living Christ, he would command them to be silent. But now the time had come. So as Jesus comes riding into Jerusalem late in the afternoon on Palm Sunday, he comes down the Mount of Olives, coming in from the east, riding in on the colt of a donkey, one on whom no one had ever sat. We find there that all this messianic fervor, this this pent-up messianic excitement, it was finally unleashed. This was a clear and public declaration. Jesus was obviously fulfilling the words of the prophet Zechariah, and the people knew exactly what to do. The Jewish people, they went and they cut down palm branches. This was a sign of peace that had been won through victorious uh, battles. They took these palm leaves and they laid them down along the road. Many others, they took their cloaks and they laid them along the path. This was a show of submission. This was a show that they received and honored and recognized Jesus as their promised king. And the people cried out together, Hosanna. In Hebrew, that's Hoshiana. It means save us, please. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. The Jewish people were saying all the right words. Jesus Christ had come to bring salvation. He was the promised king from the line of David. It was in him that the kingdom came. He was the one who came in the name of the Lord. But for so many of the Jewish men and women standing upon that mountain, I believe for the vast majority of them, their hearts were so hardened. Their eyes were so darkened, they just couldn't see. Now, they were willing to welcome Jesus as king as long as his kingdom was immediate and physical and earthly and political and military. You see, what they wanted was a savior who would make sure that they did not suffer any longer in their earthly lives. So in their minds, that surely had to begin by setting them free from Rome. They awaited a savior, a Christ, a king, who would make war and chase the Romans out of Israel. And we find that that is why Jesus has kept this thing a secret, his identity. He's kept it a secret for so long because Jesus knows the hearts of men. He knew that these men did not rightly understand why Messiah had come. You see, they had no idea that just by being born from the family of Abraham did not guarantee them a place in the kingdom of heaven. They had no concept of the fact that Jesus must die for their sins. And that if he did not die for their sins, and unless they were joined to him in repentant faith, that they would find they had no place in the kingdom of God. But now is the time. Now is the time, and Jesus was ready to really press the issue. You see, the Lord knew that this Jewish crowd, they were going to be confused. And yet he knew that they were going to lavish this praise upon him. Although it was misguided, although they misunderstood, he knew that with this praise was going to draw the ire of the Sanhedrin, the Jewish elite, The Jewish Supreme Court, he knew that they were jealous. They had already set their minds on killing Jesus. And certainly, with the raising of Lazarus from the dead, the die had been cast. 
but they weren't going to do it this week, at least not according to their own plans, not during the Passover. There are far too many people in the town on this day, so they were going to wait for a more opportune time. You see, these men, they like to work under the darkness of night. They were going to wait on their terms until their time to take the life of Jesus. But God had other plans. This was the hour. This was the day. On this week, on this Friday, at the very time that the Passover lambs were slain, then God would take the life of his own son by the hands of these wicked men. We see Jesus pressing the issue. And with his triumphal entry, this whole thing kicks into high gear. The days that followed that, they were filled with nothing but confrontation and betrayal. We see as these men constantly confront Jesus, and every time they go away like dogs with their tails tucked between their legs, knowing that they've been whooped. And then, early in the hours of the day that we call Good Friday morning, after five days, of, five days from the excitement of Palm Sunday, we see that Jesus was arrested, he was beaten, he was mocked, and he was condemned to death by the Jewish people. All of his closest followers, the male ones at least, they all abandoned him. He was handed over to the Romans. They too tried him. Under the pressure of the Jewish leaders, they tried him. And eventually, they crucified him. Just hours later, under the orders of Pontius Pilate, these Roman soldiers, they crucified Jesus. Six hours after that, after Jesus had done all that he came to do, having accomplished the redemption of his people, having atoned for the sins of his sheep. We know that Jesus let out a loud cry. He breathed his last breath, gave up his spirit, and died. I pray that you haven't lost a sense of shock that should come from this, that Jesus, the Christ, the Son of Man and the Son of God, died. He paid the wage that your sin has earned. It's at that point that we know that two secret disciples, a man called Joseph from Arimathea and Nicodemus, these were Jewish rulers themselves. They came and they asked for permission to take Jesus' body. They took it down off the cross and lovingly they cared for him. They washed him up. They took clean linen wrappings and they cared for his body. They wrapped him up. They took some 75 pounds of myrrh and aloe. They wrapped that up with his body. And they buried him in Joseph's garden tomb. This was the tomb of a rich man, a tomb in which no man had ever been laid. Truly, truly, this was a funeral fit for a king. Even if there was no pomp and circumstance, even if there were only two attendants, this was a funeral of a rich man, of a king. And sitting across from this tomb there in that garden, we know were some of Jesus' female followers, some women disciples, They had been with Jesus for some time now. They had been walking with him, traveling. They had ministered to Jesus' needs along with the needs of the others that were there with him. They had sat at his feet and they had heard his teaching. They had seen his miracles and they had not run when the men did. They stayed there and they watched Jesus breathe his last breath. They were there as he died. They saw him as he died. They watched as they took him off of the cross. They watched carefully the way the men handled his body. And then they sat and they watched as they placed his body into the tomb. At that point, as the sun began to set, we know that these women, they retired to wherever it is that they were standing, staying in Jerusalem at that time. These women were from Galilee, and so we don't know exactly where they went. Did they go back over the Mount of Olives into Bethany and stay at the house of Mary and Martha? Perhaps did they go into Jerusalem and stay at the home of John Mark's mother? We don't know for sure. But it's at that point that they went, and they spent the rest of Saturday, the Sabbath, resting exactly as the law demands. Then in this morning's text, When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome brought spices so that they might go and anoint him. Now by now you know the names of these women. Immediately their their character sketches come into your mind. You hear about Mary Magdalene and you know that she was the one that Jesus had set free from seven demonic spirits. You know about Mary the mother of James. She seems to be the wife of Cleophas, possibly also the mother of Joseph. We know about Salome, that she was the wife of Zebedee, the mother of the apostles John and James, perhaps even Jesus' aunt. We know that there was other women there as well, a number of other women. In fact, in Luke's gospel, we read about another lady named Joanna. Back in Luke chapter 8, we read that Joanna was the wife of a man called Shuza, who was the household caretaker for King Herod. 
Now, harmonizing all these accounts, figuring out exactly what women came and when, it can be incredibly difficult, especially when you have so many women named Mary and you have so many sons that are named James or Joseph or John. But the important thing to know here is that these women loved Jesus. They were precious to him, and he was everything to them, even in his death, even beyond his death. These women loved him. Now, they would have had no way of fully comprehending everything that Jesus had accomplished for them on the cross. They would have had no way of knowing all that he had just paid to secure their salvation. They would have had no way of knowing what awaited them on this Easter Sunday morning. And yet, even in his death, even at this point perhaps believing that all their messianic hopes had been dashed, these women's love for Jesus was unfading. They watched closely. They were going to make sure that nobody abused Jesus' body. Nobody dishonored him in any way, even in his death. And now, they plan to go back. It's a show of love. They plan to go back and properly anoint his body. You see, the men, they had to work with haste because the Sabbath was coming with the setting of the sun. So the women were going to go back. Now, this wasn't a mere show. This wasn't a mere formality. And certainly, there would appear to have been nothing that these women had to gain by going back and doing this. No one would have blamed them. Many of these women surely had children. No one would have blamed these women if they had packed up, headed back home, and went on with their life. They had to have known that not only would the Jewish rulers not be satisfied just with the death of Jesus Christ, they had to do everything they could to squash this movement. Surely it was not safe for them in Jerusalem, much less safe going to care for the life of Jesus Christ who had just been crucified. And yet these women loved Jesus more than they cared for their own comfort. These women loved Jesus apparently more than they worried for the safety of their own lives. Now what they did, it might seem like a simple act. This doesn't seem necessarily spiritual. Going to buy spices, going to anoint a dead body. And yet, dear friends, you must see that this is a picture of unfading love. True and abiding love. Now these spices that these women bought, they would have surely been in liquid form, much like the ointment. You remember as as Jesus was reclining at Mary's house, he had been invited over for supper. This was a celebratory feast for him, and Lazarus was there as well. And we know that Jesus was reclining at the table, and then Mary comes out with this alabaster flask. It was full of nearly a pound of expensive ointment. Pure nard was what it was. And you know how in this extravagant act of worship, the woman broke the flask because she wouldn't be needing it anymore. She poured it all out upon Jesus Christ. And I told you that this was a picture of true spiritual worship. And I told you how it shines all the brighter against the backdrop of Judas' betrayal. And remember that on that night, the betrayer, he spoke up. He chastised the woman for being so wasteful with such an extravagant gift. At that point, Jesus shut shut the man down in his tracks. He said, leave her alone. For what this woman has done is beautiful to me. And everywhere the gospel is proclaimed, people will tell about what she has done. For what this woman has done is she has anointed me beforehand for my burial. I wonder if perhaps some of these same women had been at that dinner. Maybe they remembered this extravagant gift from this woman. But either way, driven by the same kind of love, they were going to care for Jesus' body. They were going to anoint him with oil. So Mark tells us that the women, they went and they bought the spices after the Sabbath was passed. Now you already know this by now, but the Jewish days, they began at sundown. And so what would have happened is as soon as the sun went down on Saturday night, that meant that the Sabbath was over, sometime around six o'clock in the evening probably. The sun goes down and it is now no longer Saturday the Sabbath. It is now officially Sunday. That would have meant that there would have been a very short window then between six o'clock in the evening and bedtime. There would have been a very short window when the markets would open up. So if you had something that you had need of and you couldn't wait until the sun came up on Sunday morning to go and purchase it, you could rush to the markets in this short window and you could buy what you needed. That seems to be exactly what's happening here. The bazaars didn't stay open all night. That wouldn't be safe. They shut down in the evenings. And yet Mary and and the others, Mary Magdalene and the others, they wanted desperately to get to Jesus' tomb as early as possible on Easter Sunday morning, not knowing that it was Easter. And so they go on Saturday night. As soon as the Sabbath is over, they take advantage of this window. I imagine them looking out the window or perhaps up on the roof in their home, and they're watching, perhaps for those first three stars that pop up to indicate that it is now uh, dusk. 
The day is now past. It is no longer the Sabbath. And then they rushed to the marketplace to get their work done. Then they came back home. They prepared the, they prepared the spices. And I imagine they watched the hours waiting for the sun to come up. I can't imagine that these women or any of the other disciples got much rest. Having seen the gruesome death of this one they called Lord, knowing that the Jewish rulers would not be satisfied just with his death, knowing what awaited them on the next day, I don't imagine any of them rested. Verse 2, And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. So Mark tells us that the sun has just risen on Sunday morning. Matthew tells us that it was towards dawn. Luke tells us that it was early dawn. And John appears to be telling us that it was still dark. And so some people have really gotten twisted up in knots about how do all these things work together. But we must remember that men and women in the ancient Near East, they did not keep time with nearly the precision that we do today. You didn't get on your iPhone back then and look and determine at what hour, what minute is sun up tomorrow. It was based on watching the sun in the sky, perhaps charting the stars, watching where the moon was. And so it's perfectly possible that these three or four men would have all accounted for the same time of day using different terms. In my mind, what's happened is the sun has just now broken the horizon, enough so that you could say that the sun was up, and yet it was still dawn, perhaps even still dark there in the garden. Or perhaps when they left their homes, it was still dark, and when they arrived at the tomb, the sun had now risen. It's not all that critical. The important thing to know is it is as early as you can imagine on Easter Sunday morning. Verse 3, and the women were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance to the tomb? So these women, they had surely been thinking this through because they were there, remember? They were there carefully watching Joseph and Nicodemus as they buried Jesus' body. They had watched as they rolled the stone across the entrance of the tomb. Now, you remember that the stone that, that covered a, a, a rocky tomb like this, it was probably much like a, like a wheel or a disc, a giant round stone that would have been flat on either side. You remember I told you that more than likely it sat in a rut of sorts, a rut that was lower down by the face of the door and then got higher as you moved away, almost like a ramp. So it would take a great effort to roll the stone away, and then you would put a peg in the ground or something like that to hold it in place. Then in order to put it back, all you had to do was remove the peg or just get the momentum going, and it would roll back and cover the tomb. Now some historians tell us that a number of tombstones like this, it could have taken as many as 20 men to roll them out of the way. Now whether we're dealing with something that heavy or not isn't necessarily the thing. The point is that these women knew that they did not possess the physical ability to move it out of the way, certainly because the men hadn't gone with them. So the women, they keep saying to each other, this is an ongoing thing. As they traveled, they continually said, who will roll the stone away from the entrance to the tomb for us? Now, we're not told that these women knew that the Sanhedrin had gone and convinced Pilate to set a guard for the tomb. Also, that he had sealed the tomb. I have to imagine that if they had known this, the chances that they would have gone and tried to attend to Jesus' body probably would have decreased greatly. And so, in my mind, these women, as they're traveling, they have to be thinking our best bet is that one of the gardeners, some of the men there that are, that are tending the garden, surely they will help us, or perhaps we can find Joseph and Nicodemus, and they will come and help us as well. But again, the important thing for us to note here is that these women had every expectation that the stone would still be before the tomb. They had every expectation that Jesus was still lying dead within that tomb, both they and all the other disciples. You see, when I was a kid, I had this expectation, this, this picture in my mind that as Jesus comes out of the tomb on Easter Sunday morning, there's a roar from the crowd because they've all been standing there waiting. And yet we find it's the opposite. Nobody, apparently, for a second thought that Jesus was actually going to rise again. The men hid in fear, and the women do the, did the best thing they knew to do. We will love Jesus in his death by anointing his body. Verse 4, and looking up, they saw the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. So you can picture this, can't you? These women, they're, they're, they're traveling and they're heartbroken over everything that they've already seen. They're probably exhausted. If they had been in Bethany, you're talking about something like a three-mile trek, I think. I was talking to somebody yesterday. We figured that's probably like 45 minutes or something. These are fit women in that part of the world in that day and age. But still, you're, you're walking some distance and you're downtrodden and heartbroken. You're expecting to find your Savior, your Lord, dead in this tomb. 
Surely some of them are walking along the way just solemnly looking at the ground. And others, again, they were talking to each other about what's going to happen when we get there. And I can just picture it as they finally reach the garden and one of them looks up. It appears maybe it was Mary Magdalene that first looks up and realizes the stone's been rolled away. The scripture tells us that the women were perplexed is what Luke says. He uses the word perplexed. They were mesmerized. They were amazed. They had no idea how such a thing could happen. And if we flip to Mark's gospel, you might want to do that with me. Mark chapter 28. You flip to Mark's gospel, you find out exactly what has happened. Exactly how this stone, did I say Mark? There is no Mark 28, or we'd be here forever. Let's try Matthew 28. I've been accused of twisting the scripture. I've never been accused of adding 12 chapters to scripture. I don't do either of those things. So Matthew tells us, Matthew 28, he tells us exactly what has happened. Matthew 28, I begin in verse 2. And behold, there was a great earthquake. Now we don't know if this was something that was extremely localized. It was something that could only be felt there in the garden or perhaps all of Judea. We don't know. We also know that it would not have been all that abnormal for there to be a, uh, an aftershock or a tremor of some sort after the great earthquake that had happened the day before. It split rocks in the ground. you remember this? At the moment of Jesus' death. But he doesn't call this a tremor. He doesn't call it an aftershock. What Matthew says is this was a great earthquake. Megas is the word for great here. There was a great earthquake. For an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. So whenever we find the word for in scripture, you're very often safe to translate it as because. There was a great earthquake because an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and rolled back the stone. Now we don't know if it was the coming of the angel that caused the earthquake. We don't know if it was the rolling back of the stone that caused the earthquake. More than likely, the earthquake was just a sign that something was happening. God often acts within his creation to make clear, you need to perk up because this isn't normal. But we know that a stone like this would have been no problem for an angel of God. We know that one angel can wipe out entire armies of men, and so the stone was, was not a big issue, but the angel, we read that he rolls back the stone, and then he sits upon it. I don't know, I don't know why, but that makes me giggle every time. The idea of this angel, I mean, he was... He could have gone and sat in the tomb. We know that later he was in the tomb. He, he could have walked around a little bit, but he just kind of perches up on top, like almost like he's proud of what he's done. He's proud that he's been chosen, sent by God to, to do this thing. But he rolls back the stone and he sits on top. Verse 3, and his appearance was like lightning, and his clothing were white as snow. Now, if you've gathered together with us on Wednesday evenings, you know that we spent the last, I think, four weeks, maybe, studying the doctrine of angels and you don't have to have come on Wednesday to already know that angels are created spiritual beings. I know that many people have this concept, perhaps, that angels are dead saints or loved ones that have gone before us, but angels were created angels. They're created beings by God. They're moral agents, answerable to God. They're intelligent. They're organized, personal beings. And yet as spiritual beings, by their nature, they don't possess bodies. Which means that in their nature, we cannot see them with our physical eyes or understand them through our physical traits, our, our physical senses. However, in accordance with God's will, in accordance with his plan, and in order to accommodate his plan for redemption, God will often make it so that men can see them. He'll cause them to appear. He'll cause them to take on a form that can be seen by the naked human eye. Now, sometimes only specific people can see the angels. Think about Balaam's donkey, the donkey before the man. You think about the servant of the prophet Elisha. Other times, everyone present will see the angels. There's often a difference in, in the way that angels will appear at times. You see, Scripture tells us, like Hebrews 13 tells us, that there are times when angels will present themselves. Angels will come in a form that looks so much like an ordinary man that you can minister to them. You can care for them, you can entertain them, and they can walk away and you can be completely unaware. Think about Genesis 18, the story that we hear there about Abraham is three men come to him and we know that those three men were the Lord and two of his angels. Joseph, uh, Abraham, excuse me, he offers these angels water to wash their feet. Not only do these angels have feet, but their feet got dirty. He offered them 
milk to drink and, and a fattened calf to eat. But the picture here is that it's possible for you to entertain angels, for you to meet face-to-face -face with an angel that's taken on a form that leaves you completely unaware that you even met with one. But then there's those other times. Then there's those other times when God says, I'm going to reveal my holy angels in a way that is much more indicative of their true nature, the power, the radiance that shines all around them that leaves men just stricken with fear. Many of them will fall down. Some of them will try to worship angels. And I pointed out a couple of Wednesday nights back that I, I, I'm always amazed at the fact that as men fall down to worship these angels, these angels have the good sense to say, please stand up. They know what God does to men and other created beings that receive the worship that is due to him. And we see, though, that this angel comes. Matthew tells us that just like many other angels, he's got, a, he's got white garments as white as snow. This is a picture of hol holiness and purity. They had the appearance of lightning. Now, this obviously had to have happened before the women arrived because they didn't. when they got there, the stone had already been rolled away. That means it was still dark when this happened. And could you imagine the shock? You know what it's like to be laying in bed in the darkness of night and your wife comes in and just flips on the light like you're not there. But you know that shock to your system of that, the light coming on. Well, this wasn't just the lights coming on. This was an angel, a mighty warrior sent from heaven, a messenger of God coming, and he appears like a bolt of lightning. That's what we read in verse 4, that for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. Now, we don't know how many guards were there. It could have been as many as 600 However many men were there, they couldn't process what they saw. They were struck by equal parts awe and terror. Surely they had to have believed that this angel had come to destroy them, especially, especially in light of all the supernatural things that they had seen and the claims that Jesus had made. They had to imagine that this was their end, and so they just fell out like dead men. This doesn't mean they were just paralyzed with fear. I have to imagine this means they went unconscious. They passed out, hundreds perhaps of these men just falling all over themselves at the sight of this one angel. We're not told that the angel confronted them, that he addressed them. He moves a stone, sits on top, crosses his arm, and they fall down dead. Again, it seems that all of this happened before dawn. Because the women, they, they show up, and, and not only is he, we're not told that the angel is still perched there upon the rock, but... They don't say anything about the soldiers laying out like dead men. So I have to imagine at this point they've already come too. They've woken up and now they've run for their lives and run to give a report of what's happened. So, but again, Mark does not reference the angel for us yet. So apparently he's not still sitting on the tomb. So we go back. Entering the tomb. This is back in Mark's gospel. Entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side dressed in a white robe. And they were alarmed. So the women, they, they entered the tomb. And we know that this is why this angel has rolled the stone away. It wasn't for Jesus' sake. In his glorified body, Jesus had all the power he needed to roll the stone away. In fact, depending on how you understand his glorified spiritual body, Jesus may have just been able to walk through the walls of the tomb. Jesus did not need this angel's help by rolling away the stone. He rolled away the stone so that these women, and by extension, you and I, could see into the tomb. Dear friends, this is the first testimony. This is the first witness, the empty tomb. Luke makes it clear to us. He says that the women, they found the stone rolled away from the tomb, but they went in and did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. Dear friends, do you see the way God has orchestrated all of this? He made certain that a soldier would thrust Jesus through with a spear. Otherwise, we might be tempted to think that he had swooned or passed out. He made sure that these women were there to watch Jesus' burial. Otherwise, we might be tempted to think that they went to the wrong tomb. He made certain that the Sanhedrin demanded that there was a guard at the tomb. Otherwise, we might be th tempted to think that someone stole his body. He made certain that this angel came and rolled the stone away from the tomb. Otherwise, we might be tempted to think that Jesus still lay there dead. Do you see all the ways that God has constantly been working? Actively working to give us assurances and proof. Personal eyewitness testimony that Jesus was really dead. Jesus was really buried. And the tomb is really empty. It's empty except for this angel. We read that it was a man sitting in a white robe. Now Luke tells us that there were actually two angels there. Now again, this doesn't create a problem for us. Perhaps Matthew and Mark, they just talked about the angel that addressed the women. But either way, the angel is there and he interacts with them. 
Now, it doesn't appear as though the women are terrified by this angel, not nearly like the men. Certainly they were fearful as they left, but they weren't nearly terrified like the men. So perhaps did it look different to them? It says that it was a man sitting in a white robe. Perhaps was there some change in the angel's appearance from that point to then? We don't know, but we do read that the women were alarmed. The Greek word is ekthambio. It's the same word that we read used of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, where we read that Jesus began to be greatly distressed. It's the same word that's used of the crowds. When Jesus comes down from the Mount of Transfiguration, we read that when they saw Jesus, they were greatly amazed. The women were amazed. They were distressed. They were fearful. They were in awe at the appearance of this angel. Now Luke tells us that at this point, the women, while they didn't fall out like dead men, they did bow their faces to the ground. And if we look at what the angel said, I'm going to read to you from both Matthew, Mark, and Luke, because I think it's helpful for us to get a full picture of what this angel said. What Mark says for us in verse 6, And the angel said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who is crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. Matthew 28, 5-6. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus, who is crucified. He is not here, for he is risen, as he said. Come, see the place where he lay. And then Luke 24, 5-7. The men said to them, why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but he is risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise again. Dear friends, this is the second witness. The angelic messengers, they had been sent by God not only to roll away the tomb to make sure the women could go inside and see that it was empty, but to make sure they didn't misunderstand what all of this meant. So first, they do point the women to the first witness. They do point the women's attention to the empty tomb. They told them, don't be alarmed. I know why you're here. You come seeking Jesus of Nazareth, and I confirm that he has been crucified. Now go and look for yourself. You saw where he was laid. Go in and look for yourself and see that he's not there anymore. So they go in. Now, based on what we read in John's gospel, based on what Peter and John see as they come running to the tomb and look inside it later, we have a good idea of what the women saw. They saw linen cloths lying there and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Everything was nice, neat, and orderly. There had been no kind of fanatic struggle. This, this wasn't the act of grave robbers. Listen, if you're going to steal somebody's body, you leave it wrapped up with the aloe and the myrrh and the linens because you don't want to touch it. If you were just stealing the body for other purposes, looking for gold or jewelry or something else, again, you move with great haste. You don't take the time to take off the linens, fold them up nicely, and then set them down on the ends of the, ends of the bench where he laid. No one had stolen Jesus' body. And unlike Lazarus, do you remember what happened when Lazarus came out of the tomb? When Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, do you remember? He walked out and he was still wrapped up like a mummy. The people had to unwrap him. This wasn't the case with Jesus Christ. Seems to me as he just walked right through them. And to make clear that this was an act of God, this was his plan all along. They fold him up and they lay them down as evidence for his disciples to see. But then, again, lest these women misunderstand, he doesn't want these women thinking, Jesus is not here, he's dead somewhere else. Jesus is not here. They clarify, why are you seeking the living among the dead? Some translations say, why are you seeking the living one among the dead? He's alive. He is not here. He is risen. Don't you remember what he told you? Ever since your time back in Galilee, he had been telling you over and over and over again, this is why we're going to Jerusalem. We're going to Jerusalem that I might be rejected and beaten and mocked and killed, but three days later, I will rise again. He's told you this. It is now the three, third day, and exactly as he has promised, he once was dead, but now he's alive. Dear friends, I, I pray that you've not lost your sense of wonder at this. I pray that you understand that apart from Jesus rising from the dead, apart from the resurrection, his death meant nothing. 
but in his resurrection, the whole thing becomes meaningful and miraculous. You must know that if Jesus Christ had not risen from the dead, he would not only be a liar and a false prophet, but we would know that he is not the infinitely holy and powerful son of God. If you look at Paul's letter to the Romans, in the, in the beginning, in the greeting of his letter to the Romans, he calls himself an apostle of Christ Jesus. And he goes on to say that he was the one who descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. Please hear me, church. This is so important. The people of Israel awaited a Messiah. They awaited an earthly, political, military king. They looked for a king that would come and bring an ease to all their suffering, and there was certainly no room in their mindset for a Messiah to die. And yet what we find when Jesus shows up is he comes in the form of a lowly servant, poor and meek, a life filled with humiliation, constantly talking to men, not about war, but about their sin, not about giving, eat, getting even, but about forgiveness, not about protecting their own life, but about suffering well and dying for the sake of the gospel. And yet there were so many signs that still they were out of the way. Now he comes to make war. Now he comes to set us free from the Romans. And instead they find him laying down his life without uttering a word. They find him looking at his disciples and saying, put the sword back in its sheath. You can't even swing it. This did not match up with their concepts of Messiah in any way. And so for the vast majority of Israel, this was the ultimate humiliation and defeat. Surely Jesus was not the Christ that we waited for. But God tells them, you have it completely wrong. That in the death of Jesus Christ, God had disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to shame. That this was the ultimate triumph. This was the crushing of the serpent's head. This was a disarming of all the rulers right here in the death of his son. And that in his resurrection, he was declared to be the son of God in power. That's the key phrase there. In power. Jesus Christ was always the son of God. He didn't become the son at the baptism. He didn't become the son at his death. He didn't become the son at his resurrection. And yet in that moment... As Jesus walks out of the tomb and proves that death cannot hold him, no longer is the Son of God veiled behind the weakness and humiliation of human flesh. He has risen in a spiritual, glorious, powerful body. When Lazarus walked out of the tomb, he went back to the same kind of life he always had. That's why he died again later. But Jesus Christ raises a mortal in a body that's prepared for the kingdom that he takes hold of. All power. All authority, all dominion, he took that body and he reigns in heaven today. Jesus Christ didn't unzoot, unzip his humanity suit to return to heaven and reign. He has a body fitted for his eternal kingdom, fitted for his role as high priest and mediator. He reigns on high today as a man. He's more human than you and I have ever thought of being. Pray that impresses you later. It has not already. Because the beauty in this, the wonder in this, is that he did not just raise to his own victory. He did not just raise to his own good. He rose to our justification. You see, had Jesus remained dead, we would have been forced to believe that surely he died for his own sins like everybody else, or that he was not able to fully satisfy God's wrath for our sins and he was still trying to pay them off. See, dear friends, if Jesus Christ had not raised from the dead, not only did he not prove himself to be the Son of God in power, but your hope is in vain. Your faith is foolishness. You are still lost and damned forever in your sin. But if this testimony is true, then we are truly the most blessed people in all the universe. Because we read these words, that he was delivered for our trespasses. And he was raised for our justification. 
we're not merely seeing Jesus' coming out party. We're not just seeing his enthronement. We're seeing for those that have been united to him in repentant faith, for those who are his, for his people, he is declaring to you that you are right with God. There is no condemnation. There is no more wrath. There is nothing left to remain between you and God because I have paid it all, and it is proven in the resurrection. What you see? That's what we gather to do every single Lord's Day. I got some Church of Christ brethren, and I'll ask them things about Sunday, and I'll, or Easter Sunday in particular. I'll say, hey, what are y'all doing special this Easter? The same thing we do every Sunday because every Sunday is Easter Sunday. There's some truth to that, dear friends. It's called the Lord's Day for a reason. What we gather together to do in this place every single Sunday morning is to celebrate Jesus as Lord, the Son of God, the one who has died for our sins and has been raised from the dead to prove that he has satisfied his Father's wrath on our account, that we are right with him. We celebrate the fact that he reigns on high today as the God-man, Jesus Christ, our Lord until every last enemy has been put under his feet, and that then Jesus Christ will return, we will see him, and we shall be like he is. That's our ultimate hope. Not to escape these bodies, not to be done with the flesh, but to have glorified, imperishable, honorable bodies. Do you understand? That our eternity is here. The new heavens and a new earth with new bodies, just as Jesus has. So we come to celebrate every single Lord's Day. It's God's people gathering under the Lordship of Christ, worshiping him for who he is, thanking him for all that he's done, and eagerly awaiting his return. Dear friends, and you must know that at the resurrection of Jesus Christ, all of that was confirmed. This wasn't just a parlor trick. This wasn't merely a show of power. This is incomparable love. This is the basis for your hope. Jeez Louise, i got to move quickly now. So the angel tells the women, verse 7, but go, tell his disciples and Peter that he, that is Jesus, is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. He's telling them to tell the men, Go before them to Galilee, just as he has told you. Surely this is a reference to what Jesus had said the night of the Lord's Supper. You remember that he had just warned all the men that they are going to abandon him. And he says, Mark 14, verse 27, You will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I rise up, I will go before you to Galilee. It was at that point, you remember that Peter, his pride got the better of him, and he said, Jesus, even if all these others fail away, I will never forsake you. I will never abandon you. And we know how badly that ended for Peter. That seems to be why we see this surprising phrasing here, go tell the disciples and Peter. Dear friends, I don't think this was meant to be a discouragement. We know for a fact that it wasn't as though Peter was no longer a disciple or he had been cast aside. In fact, we know that he had a special place within the church. He was going to lead God's people. He was going to be restored. That just as Jesus had promised, Peter failed. Peter denied Jesus three times, even swearing a curse upon himself. And yet just as Jesus promised, he interceded on his behalf, praying that his faith would not fail, that he would turn again and be restored. Dear friends, praise God that we have a Savior who intercedes on our behalf, that our faith may not fail, and that when we stumble, we will turn again and be restored. It seems as though, seems as though there's a reminder in this. We know that Peter probably was the one that gave this, this testimony to Mark, although he may have been around and hearing it firsthand from the ladies, but that Peter would have been reminding him, Mark, you must remember. Make sure the people remember that I failed at the most critical moment. When Jesus Christ could have most used a friend, I failed, I denied him, and I ran like a coward. Make sure the people know this, Mark. And then you tell them what Jesus did for me. You tell them how he didn't cast me aside. You tell them how I still had a place. You tell them how he restored me. You tell them how he came again to me and gave me opportunity after opportunity to profess my love. 
And the women went out, and they fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. They said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. So again, we see that the women are terrified and afraid, and they still don't know what to make of all of this. Dear friends, I know that some of you feel badly whenever you come to a portion of Scripture and, and you read it over and over and over again and you walk away and you say, I don't understand these words and I got nothing from it. These women heard this message from the lips of Jesus Christ and then a holy angel over and over and over again and they still didn't know what to make of it. And Matthew tells us that they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell the disciples. Luke tells us that as they went, they were remembering Jesus' words. So perhaps it started to come back to them as they ran, and they were filled with joy as they remembered. They were terrified at, at, at possibly what all this could mean, and they were certainly terrified by their encounter with the angel, and they were terrified about where Jesus might be. And yet, as they remembered Jesus' words, the joy swelled up in their heart. Dear friends, this is why we hide God's word in our heart. I've had the joy of, of, as a pastor of going to meet with some of our most senior of adults, many of whom their, their, their minds slip a bit and they can't always remember what they wish to say. And I'm so blessed by those that I sit with and they can't remember what they had for lunch, but they can recite entire chapters of the Bible. I say, dear God, let me be an old man like that. That doesn't just recite movie lyric or song lyrics and movie lines, but your word. Because it was that word that brought the joy in these women's heart. Is the joy probably outshadowed, overshadowed the terror in those moments. They remembered what Jesus had said, and it's really happening. It's really happening. So Mark tells us that the women did not say anything to anyone, for they were afraid. But if we look at the other synoptics, we see that the women did, in fact, go and, and tell the men. And so it seems to me, perhaps, that what happened was they didn't say anyone to anyone in Jerusalem. They didn't say anything to anyone else. They went straight to the men and they reported exactly as they'd been charged. But either way, Mark tells us the women left, trembling and astonished, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. And that's where Mark ends his gospel. And I almost feel like he just leaves a question hanging out there for you. What are you going to do with all this? What do you do with all this? Dear friends, I'm full, fully aware of the fact that the story of Jesus' earthly life did not end with women running away scared. I, I know that there are other gospel accounts, and you need to know that I spent 15 hours probably this week trying to harmonize them all and I was going to bring them all to you in some nice, neat package. And in the end, what I realized is I don't think that's what you need this morning. If you're interested, by the way, I'd love to have not wasted those 15 hours. Come see me and I'll talk your ear off about it. As the ladies in the office can attest, ask me a question and I'll answer 10. Here's where I think I landed in the end though. We could this morning talk through all the resurrection appearances of Jesus Christ. That's witness three. The empty tomb, the angelic messengers, and the risen Lord. I could talk to you about that and, and the appearances and what his body was like and the, the encounters, the conversations that he had. But the reality is at the end of that, we would find ourselves right back in this same place with the very same question, what do you do with it? What do you do with all of this? And it seems like that's Mark's point. That we don't need more witnesses. We don't need any more testimony. You remember, as I said, that Peter gave this story to Mark, but Mark was probably in and around Jerusalem as well. That surely Peter told Mark, listen, the women came, we heard about this, and still we did not believe. As a matter of fact, we know that at the end of Matthew's gospel, that as they meet Jesus up there on the mountain in Galilee, we read that now the 11 disciples went to Galilee to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. Do you understand? Having heard all the testimony from the women, having met with Jesus Christ, there on the mountain, worshiping and still doubting. 
So, dear friends, no, I don't think that you need more evidence. I've stood here before you for 26 months unpacking all the evidence, trying to break down every single word that we find in Mark's gospel. And as the best I can tell, one of three things is going to happen at this point. There are some of you in this room that are still. You will worship. You will sing the songs. You will read the scripture. You will play the part. But you are still unconvinced and doubting. For some portion of those, you have so hardened your heart that Jesus Christ himself could walk through that wall and present himself in his glorified state, and still you would doubt. You think I'm lying. See the 11. There is no testimony that will pierce a hardened heart. There is no eyewitness that somehow will give you eyes to see. And so if that's where you are, to give you more testimony, to deliver to you more witnesses, this is only going to serve to heap greater judgment upon you in the last day because all of it to you is a stumbling block and foolishness. There's others of you. You walked into this place all those many months ago, and you were already convinced. Every week as we gathered here, every word we delivered, every communion we took, every song we sang, every prayer we offered, it was like you were staring in the face of your lover. You said, there he is. It was like you were holding up a diamond and looking at it from a new angle every time. Or, or you were standing before a giant waterfall and you stepped back and now your capacity to see more of this one you love, it just grew. Week after week after week, it's like the reverse of the Grinch. Is your heart just grew and grew and grew. Wasn't that Christ was bigger? It was just your capacity to love him, to know him, to cherish him. It grew. You couldn't wait to hit these doors, not because of something I had to say, not because of some song we were going to sing, because you knew you were going to meet with Christ, and you loved him. You loved him. Then there's a third group, I think. I, I pray. I think there's a third group that, for the first time, you have finally come to realize it, it may not have been a light switch moment. It may not have been in an instant. Maybe it was the slow churning. But you finally come to realize that every bit of this word is true. The weight of it all, the gospel, all that it demands, it seemed like foolishness to you in the past. But now you know that it is true, the very epitome of truth. You just know. You can't even explain why. But in the deepest recesses of your soul, you know what that man just told me is true. And no one's going to convince me otherwise. Nothing is going to throw me off track. I know this is true. So, dear friends, if you're in that camp, I plead with you to listen to me very, very closely. Because there's only one proper response. The sum of everything that we have spent these last two years bringing together, the sum of it all, there is only one proper response, and it's found all the way at the beginning of this gospel. You remember as Jesus began his earthly ministry, primarily a preaching ministry, he went around saying, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe in the gospel. If you find yourself here believing in the gospel, then I plead with you today, repent. If you believe it sometime in the past that you had believed the gospel, today you still must repent. We see this as the apostles, they went around all through the book of Acts. They went around sharing this testimony, preaching this gospel, always on the basis of the resurrected Christ, always on the basis that he has risen again and ascended to the right hand of the Father. And over and over and over again, the message was the same, repent. Don't mourn. Don't feel convicted. Don't say you're sorry. Repent. Throw the full weight of everything that you have and everything that you are on Jesus Christ and trust that he will bear it. Look to him as your only treasure and your ultimate hope. If you believe these words to be true, what fool would you be to do anything else? What a fool would you be to try to earn your way in the kingdom of God? What a fool you would believe you would be to sit there on your hands and not giving yourself over to him fully like this. That's the message. Repent. And dear friends, I'll plead with you to do it today. Because you need to know that something else was confirmed in the resurrection. We know that Paul was standing upon Mars Hill and he was delivering a sermon and he was, he was talking to these men. 
And we know there that he says this, Acts 17. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man he has appointed. And of this man he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Dear friends, do you understand that in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, he, he rose as king and glorious and powerful Lord. The question is, did you rise with him or will you stand before him as judge? Do you understand? That this resurrection should strike fear into your heart if you do not find yourself repenting. Throwing the full weight of all you have because you have no answer for this judge when he comes. In his first coming, he came to offer us salvation. Isn't that what John 3.16 and 17 and beyond tells us? He has not come to condemn the world. The other word there can be judge. He did not come to judge the world. And yet, just verses after that, he says, but the judgment has already come. The judgment is this, that those who do evil, they won't come to the light of the world. They won't come to Jesus Christ because they don't want their works to be exposed. You don't have to wait for the final judgment day to know where you stand. If you don't see yourself coming to the light, repenting, throwing the full weight of all that you have upon him, then you can know today that you will stand before him as judge when that day comes. So again, I tell you, there is only one proper response, and that is to repent. Father God, we praise you and we thank you. Again, I thank you for this people. They are not a normal group. Other people who desires not to have their ears tickled, not to hear funny stories and jokes, not to be entertained, but people desperate for your word. I thank you for the time you've given us in this book. I feel like I'm saying goodbye to a friend. It is, it is a bittersweet moment. We thank you for this time that you've given us in this gospel. We thank you for this word. We thank you for the power, the work that your spirit has done with this word in our lives, in the life of this faith family. So, Father, I pray that in the moments to come as we sing songs of worship and praise, Father, if there are any here that have not repented, thrown the full weight of all that they have and all that they are upon your son, Jesus Christ, may today be the day. <coughs> By the working of your spirit, would you quicken them? Would you bring them to life? Give them eyes to see Jesus as their only hope, their ultimate treasure. Give them the faith, the ability to repent and cry out, and then save them, Father. God, we love you. We trust you and we thank you. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.